When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If your roof starts to leak or your floor's really squeak, you live in a money pit. Money pit. If your basement needs a pump or your place looks like a dump, you live in a money pit. Money pit. Pick up the telephone, fix up your home sweet home. I call an 888 money pit. The money pit is presented by the Angie app and LL Flooring's Profiles Podcast. Now, here are Tom and Leslie. Coast to coast and floorboards to shingles, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Here to help you take on these spring projects on your to-do list. You can slide them right over to ours when you reach out with your questions at one money pit or head to moneypit.com slash ask and click the blue microphone button. Hey, coming up on today's show, outdoor kitchens. They have never been more popular, but... Cooking and dining outside does require sort of a special recipe of its own. So we're going to tell you everything you need to know to plan and build your own outdoor kitchen. And are you ready to prep your garden for a season of delicious veggies and beautiful flowers? Well, the first step is to get the soil ready. We've got all the dirt on garden soil prep just ahead. And hardwood floors are one of the most desirable floors around for both durability and the value they add to a home. But the finishes do wear out, and when that happens, they need to be restored. So we're going to walk you through the easiest way to get that project done. And you need some help with a renovation, repair, or a springtime decor project? Well, we're here to help you create your best home ever and tackle your to-dos with confidence. So give us a call. Let us know what you are working on, or maybe you're not working on it just yet, but you are dreaming of tackling that project. So give us a call now before you start that project so we can help you be, you know, ready and prepared and have all the supplies and everything that you're dreaming of checked off so you're ready to start and tackle it and finish it in no time. That number is one 888 which also so happens to spell 888-MONEYPIT. Or you can go to moneypit.com slash ask and click the blue microphone button. So let's get to it. Leslie, lots of folks working on projects today. Who's first? Barry in Texas is on the line with a painting question. How can we help you? Well, I have a, 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 an arbor outside my house. The beams of my house extend out uh, from the roof, and it makes a, a, an arbor outside. And I've had, I've painted it a couple of times and the paint keeps wearing off and I'm afraid the wood's going to start rotting. And I'm wondering if I should do something special to protect the roof, protect the wood, like uh, maybe put some water seal on it. Or I, I even thought about maybe putting some metal stripping, but I thought that might get wet and make it rot even worse. So I'm, I just really want to protect that wood. Well, I think first of all, let's talk about the process of which to properly paint exterior wood. Now, to start, you want to make sure that you're getting off anything that's sort of peeling and not sticking. So if you can, you want to either scrape some of it away, but without damaging the wood. So you can also use a chemical stripping agent, which would take the paint off of the wood and get as much of it off as you can, and then get it nice and smooth, you know, sand any rough areas if you're stuck with them. And then I would use an oil-based primer and an oil-based paint 
if you're allowed in your area, because that's truly going to adhere. The trick is that wood's got to be bone dry before you go ahead and paint it, because if it's slightly wet, nothing is going to adhere properly, and that truly will help out a ton. Okay, so so just use oil-based instead of latex paint? Yeah, but as Leslie said, you've got to get down to the wood, because if you've got multiple layers of paint on there, it's just going to keep the laminating between the surfaces of the paint, especially being in such a wet location. So you want to get the old paint off, make sure it's super dry, an oil-based primer, let it dry real well, and then a good quality top coat. And I think you'll find you'll get a lot more years out of that surface before you have to do this again. Okay. She she also said that it sounded like she said uh, it need, I needed to get down to, to, and smooth the wood, but this is uh, it's rough cedar. So I mean, only if you've got areas where um, you know where you've got unevenness from any paint that might not come off, just so you're not seeing like that that sort of like rippled edge of the old paint with the new paint, that's truly the only places that I would do it. And you can also use a wire brush, too, if, if it's a rough yeah, cedar. Just, I mean, just, just, we just want to make sure you get rid of everything that's loose there. You really get down to an original surface so you have something that can really bite, that new paint can bite into. See, the, the primer is, is kind of the adhesive here, and, and that's why it's such an important step. If you do a good quality primer, that's going to really bind to the wood and bind to the paint and try to keep the whole system together because it really is a system. We don't think about paint as being a system, but it is. The binder sticks to the wood and the paint, the top coat sticks to the binder. Okay, great. So so oil-based primer topped with oil-based paint. You got it. Good luck with that project, Barry. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. Sandra, you've got the Money Pit. How can we help you today? Oh, hello. My question concerns, would you recommend a radon test for a house? Our home is a two-story house on a hill, and the lower level, which is completely finished, is two sides underground, and it has two sides ground level. And if we have a radon problem, can something be done to um, correct that? We're in the Pacific Northwest, um, about 60 miles south of Seattle. And do you hear about high radon levels in that area coming up occasionally? I don't, but I've never talked about it with anybody. So, I, And I saw something in the paper recently that suggested people have this test. Well, it's certainly a good idea. So order a radon test kit. You can probably find one online. The type you want is called charcoal adsorption, A-D, S-O-R-B, ad, not ab, adsorption. And it's a type of test that you'll put in the home for anywhere from about three to seven days. You open up this charcoal canister or this charcoal packet, depending on the type of test. You leave it on the lowest living space. So whatever the lowest area finished living space is, you leave it there for that period of time. You seal it back up. You send it off to a lab. They're going to give you a result. If it comes in at four picocuries per liter of air or higher, then that's the action guideline, um, after which point you would want to consider some sort of remediation. Now, you ask the question, well, how do I do that exactly? And the answer is it's harder when the whole space is finished, but it's not impossible. Generally, the way radon is mitigated is by a, a system called a sub-slab ventilation system, where they basically run pipes below the surface of the lowest slab and pull the gas out of the soil and then discharge it outside. So it's a matter of figuring out where to get that pipe into the slab and uh, where to discharge it out, you know, with the least amount of disturbance. But a good radon mitigator can do this even in a finished house. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it sounds quite complex. Well, it's pretty straightforward, but you got to start with the test. So I would do that first. Right. And, and that's only there. if they find something. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Okay. Are there areas in the country where you're more likely to have radon? Yep. There's a, if you go to the EPA website, epa.gov radon, uh, there's uh-huh. information about radon zones 
across the entire country, including uh, contact information for uh, your local state area. Oh, all right. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Pit. Did you know that Americans take 20,000 breaths a day and spend an average of 90% of their time indoors? That's right. And according to the EPA, the level of indoor air pollutants can be two to five times higher than outdoor air and occasionally more than 100 times higher. Plus, every spring we get sucked with allergens, too. Well, Air Doctor is an air purifier that filters out dangerous contaminants like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold. Their Ultra HEPA filter has been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested allergens, including bacteria and viruses. That's impressive. Now, Air Doctor also comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus the shipping. And they're offering a special discount to Money Pit listeners. Just head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code MONEYPIT, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you'll also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock this special offer in right now by going to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code MONEYPIT. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code MONEYPIT. Jeff in Georgia, you've got the money pit. How can we help you today? So I've got a home that I bought recently. It was built in 2006, however. It has a, both bathrooms have a fiberglass or, well, I guess it's a fiberglass insert tub or on one of the tubs. If you, while you're taking a shower, if you move around, say there's a loud squeak and a pop that you kind of hear almost as if it's binding and the way that it's mounted or the way that it's inserted. So I don't know of a way to get under there to secure anything, or, or I don't know of a way to, to relieve some of that stress. What can we do? What it means to me, Jeff, is that the tub was not put in correctly by the builder. Um, with those fiberglass tubs, the best technique, because you're right, they are very flexible. So what the better pros do is they will put a loose mortar mix on the floor, so like take a bag of quick crete, mix it up maybe a little looser than you normally would, and they'll spread it out on the floor where the tub's going to be set, and then they'll like push the tub kind of into it. And if you think about it, as that dries, it gives you support across the underside of the entire surface of that tub, and that stops the flex that you're now experiencing because as you use it over the years, now your house is about 10 years old, so lots of showers have happened between now and then, and it's starting to loosen up a bit. I will say that I've rarely heard it actually cracking and breaking through, so I would tend to think it's more of an annoyance. It is rather rather difficult, if not impossible, to do anything about that now. You know, if you could get access to that area under the tub, you know, you could inject some foam in there or something of that nature. But even doing that, I would proceed very carefully because if you if you didn't get it in in just the right way, sometimes those foams can expand and, and right. push up, you know. So I think I would just kind of live with it and, and not really try to fix it. But I think that's exactly what's happening. Well, I think what you've done is you've moved one of our projects to the top of our list. So if we were... 
the replacing the tub insert and or the the flooring and everything in that bathroom was something right. we had really thought about doing. Okay. Uh, now we 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 thought we had a little more time. Well, and I, and I wouldn't disagree with that. I don't think this is an emergency. I think you know it's it sounds like it's kind of an emotional emergency because it's bugging the <laughs> heck out of you, <laughs> which we which we sympathize with. But um, you know I don't think this is a this is an urgent matter. But certainly it's another reason if you're planning on remodeling your bathroom to to get it done. Right. I think that definitely moved it up a little higher. All right, good. That's for sure. Listen, I appreciate it. I love you guys. You guys have definitely helped me out a million times. So happy to do that. Good luck with that project. Let us know how it comes out. 888-666-3974. Well, outdoor living spaces are super popular right now, and that includes outdoor kitchens. But there are definitely some key differences between designing an indoor and an outdoor kitchen space. So let's start there. First of all, powering an outdoor kitchen does come with plenty of considerations, considering that nothing is protected from the elements. Then you've got plumbing to deal with that's got to be set up to easily be drained in the off-season. And even the appliances you choose, like the refrigerator, for example, have to be rated for outdoor use. So the first step, guys, when you're planning this outdoor kitchen space is to think about the location. Now, an existing patio, that's going to be a great foundation for your outdoor kitchen space. You can add counters and a grill without making any structural modifications. Decks, on the other hand, you might need to add some support. Now, you're going to want to pick a location that's not too far away from your home so that you're keeping those back-and-forth runs minimal. And the side of the house can be an ideal spot. There's no need to excavate trenches for gas or run any additional electricity lines. And outdoor kitchens are almost always the most social of spots. So you want to make sure a grill smoker is not going to blow in the direction of those family and friends who are hanging out. Next, you need to think about electricity and plumbing. So when it comes to electricity, you're definitely going to need at least some lighting for test lighting or for appliances. And you also need to include ground fault outlets, those GFCI outlets that will have the set, the the test and reset buttons on them. They're going to protect you from shocks. Now, your option is to put in a ground fault outlet at every location, or you could put in one ground fault circuit breaker at the main panel. That's a much better way to go because this way, if something trips, you know exactly where to go. It's inside the house, and you can address it. Now, when it comes to outdoor plumbing, you don't need outdoor plumbing for sinks. It's not a requirement, but it sure is a nice thing to have. Stainless steel sinks work best outdoors because they don't corrode. And unless you plan on washing dishes or vegetables outside, you really only need a cold water supply. It's important, though, to install a shutoff valve inside the house so you can easily drain that line in the winter. All right, now let's talk about your options for cooking. Now, most of your outdoor kitchens are going to include a gas or a propane grill. Now, with gas grills, you're going to also need to plan to run a natural gas line or plan to use a propane grill that's going to run on a tank. And it's also really important that these grills be placed no closer than three or four feet away from the house. And refrigeration, that's a great option. You can get under-counter units. They're popular for an outdoor kitchen space. They're out of sight. They're protected by the counter, and they're handy for storage. And some even come with automatic ice makers and frost-free features. I mean, we're really making a great space for these outdoor kitchen spots. Listen, we're spending a lot more time outside now between the warm spring months and the summer and even into early fall. So one why not splurge a bit? And if you're thinking about splurging and wondering how expensive that splurge is going to be, well, look, there is some money involved here. But the, the nice thing is that the research shows that outdoor kitchens do deliver a return on investment about equal to their cost. So you will hopefully get that money back when it's time to sell the house. So why not splurge now? Enjoy it 
all season long, and you'll still get some of that value back when it comes time to sell. Although, if you keep making these improvements, you may never want to sell, right? (laughs) Everyone should know that drinking water is important to staying hydrated and healthy. Having safe, clean water is the last thing you want to worry about, but unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants right in its tap water. That's why we are thrilled to be working with AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. It removes 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and is specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAs in your water supply. And they have water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. They even have a Wi-Fi-connected purifier and mineral boost options. And its proprietary purification technology is independently tested by IATMO to NSF and ANSI standards to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAs known as forever chemicals, nitrate, and many more. I can truly taste the difference when I compare it with my old water filter. AquaTrue saves you money also. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That's less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you'll save the environment from tons of plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and even makes a great gift. And today, Money Pit listeners can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to aquatrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code MONEYPIT at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier when you go to aquatrue.com and use promo code M-O-N-E-Y-P-I-T. Money Pit. Amber in New Hampshire's on the line with some heating questions. How can we help you? Hi, I was wondering um, if it was worth the expense of converting an oil heat system with baseboard heat to a uh, electric baseboard heating system for a three-unit apartment building. Wow. Um, are you independently wealthy, Amber? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no, it's going to be really, really expensive to uh, to heat with electric if you're right now heating uh, with an oil-fired hot water boiler. Hot water heat is clearly the best heat, and it would be uh, a tragedy for you to eliminate that. Now, I'm guessing that, are you asking this question because you want the tenants of those apartments to pay their own electric bills and, and cover the heat? Yes, because right now it's all, yeah, it's all metered separately now, anyhow, for electric. So I figured, you know, right now they've got the windows open and the, you know, oil heat is cranking and, I mean, they're yeah, conscientious, right. but, you know, I think that it's it's an older building and it's the oil tank is starting to show its age and will need to be replaced and then the boil will be replaced. I'm thinking long-term maintenance is, you know, is probably yeah. <clears throat> less. Well, I hear you, but it's going to be a lot more expensive. I mean, you know, I wouldn't be in New Hampshire. I wouldn't be surprised if you ended up paying $500, $600 a month in electric bills um, per unit. Because it's just very, very expensive to use uh, electric heat. So I would encourage you to keep the hot water heat. I would encourage you to make sure it's zoned separately for each unit. If you have really old equipment, um, it would be worth replacing that equipment with new Energy Star rate equipment. If you're going to have to replace the tank anyway, you could do that at the same time. The efficiency today 
of new units compared to those that are, you know, even sometimes 10 years old, let alone those that are 20 or 30 years old, is astronomically more efficient than new stuff that's out there today. So I would never tell you to uh, to ditch the hot water baseboard. There's got to be a better way to solve this in terms of people wasting your heat that you're paying for uh, with your hard-earned dollars. Um, you know, Maybe you have to control the temperature in the units uh, and make it so they can't change that temperature, and this way they'll never be opening those windows again. There's some imbalance there. You've got to deal with the actual imbalance issue. Uh, but I don't think tearing out all of that good hot water baseboard system and replacing it with electric is the answer for you. And with gas, I mean, would it make sense to change to convert to gas? Yeah, know? we get an option with gas. I mean, gas is more desirable than oil, so you can definitely get get an um, an option for that and compare prices. Um, but I would never get rid of the hot water ever. Okay, because someone else is talking about split heat systems. I said, well, you could have built-in air conditioning as well instead of everyone popping in air conditioners in their windows. Well, then they can pay the electric bill for the air conditioning. You can split the electric and let them pay for the air. I don't see any reason that can't be done. Okay. Well, that's true, too. And have the in-wall, you know, I guess they call it like a split system or something. I don't know what that is. But If it's electric-powered and you have the electricity split among those apartments, then they're paying for the air conditioning. Right, but right now they put the window air conditioners in, if you know what I'm saying. they got to plug that in, and they're paying the electric bill. So one way or the other, whether it's a built-in unit or not, if it's electric, they should be paying for it. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at 888-MONEYPIT. Season two of the Profiles podcast is out now. Just go to llflooring.com slash profiles. That's llflooring.com slash profiles. Profiles podcast is all about Tips and advice to give professional contractors, builders, remodelers, renovators, designers, decorators. If you're in the business of improving and building, you'll learn a lot from the experts we talk to on the Profiles podcast. Again, go to lflooring.com slash profiles. Joe in Ohio, you've got the money pit. What can we do for you today? I got a question for some uh, bamboo laminate or uh, snap together flooring. Okay. And... uh, uh, somebody told me I needed to have uh, a special underlayment that that goes with the bamboo uh, compared to just the regular underlayment that, that you can use on the other free-floating floors. Well, first of all, let's just clarify. You mentioned two materials. You mentioned bamboo and you mentioned laminate. Now, laminate is not bamboo. You could have a, a bamboo pattern on laminate, but are you talking about real bamboo here or are you talking about a laminate floor? I think it's a laminate because it snaps together. It's about uh, uh, a little bit over a quarter inch thick by five and a quarter inch wide. Okay. So laminate flooring, depending on the manufacturer, often has a a type of underlayment that they recommend. And it's usually um, a very thin, like I'd say maybe like about an eighth to three sixteenths of an inch thick, uh, spongy kind of material. I have seen it as sort of a roll of white, what looks like sort of white foam, like the kind of material that you might, uh, you know, pack dishes in if you're moving, when you wrap it around and around. Um, I've also seen it where it's attached to the back of the board. So typically there is some type of soft, underlayment material that goes down, and it just gives the floor a little bit of give um, as you're walking across it. So that's kind of what you're looking for. I would go back to the manufacturer that made the product, find out exactly what underlayment they recommend, and then just use that. That sounds good. We'll have to look at the box and see what who the manufacturer is. There you go. Somebody gave me uh, 130 square foot of this laminate flooring. So Oh, fantastic. Yeah. 
Yeah, it'll go right. It'll just be the right fit for our kitchen also. All you got to do is pick up the underlayment. You're good to go. That's a fun do-it-yourself project. Listen, Joe, just remember this. Uh, when you get close to the to the edge of the room, don't go right up against it. Make sure you, you, you leave about a quarter of an inch at least between the laminate and the baseboard molding, and then you cover that gap with shoe molding. A lot of times folks go too close, and then as the floor starts to expand, it sort of buckles up, and there's not much you can do about it. So leave a little bit of gap. Uh, it's called a floating floor for a reason, okay? Thank you much. I appreciate you folks. All right. Thanks so much. We appreciate you as well, Joe. Good luck with that project. Well, if you're hoping for a blooming spring garden, prepping the soil now is a vital part of having a successful and beautiful spring garden. So here's where you start. Now, first of all, you want to pick a sunny spot. Now, you might be tempted to choose a spot in the yard that's most convenient for you. However, many times the most comfortable place in the yard is not the most productive. Plants need full sun to grow well, which means the area should receive at least six hours of direct sunlight a day. Next, you want to clear away any debris, either trash-wise or weed-wise. Your best preparation of garden soil really starts with a totally clean slate. So get rid of the weeds, clear out any debris like branches, dead plants, trash, Get rid of those weeds no matter how young they are. This is going to help keep your garden free of these very pesky intruders in the coming months. All right, next you want to loosen up that soil. No matter the type of soil that you're using, it's crucial to break up that top layer before you plant anything. Now, a garden tiller is going to make this job a lot easier, or you can grab a shovel and loosen it by hand. Either way, you need to loosen up that top foot of soil so that the new roots can grab a hold. Now, when the soil is ready, it's time to test it. So pick up a test kit at a local home center or garden center and check the soil for the right nutrients. It's very easy to do. It'll help you determine what kind of soil you have and what you need to add to make it more receptive to plant and vegetable growth. You want to aim generally for a pH level of about 6.5 for the best results. All right, now next, you've got to add compost to the soil, and that's going to give plants the needed energy that they're going to use throughout the season. And compost is also going to help that soil hold water, which can be useful during the hot, dry patches of the summer. Now, you can buy your compost, or you can create your own compost pile, and you want to mix in the compost to the top layer of the soil for an even texture, and that's going to create the best and most successful base for these plants to thrive and grow and really look amazing. And finally, the fun part, right? Right? You want to choose which plants to grow. Yeah, you've done all the hard work. Now you have the fun. <laughs> so now you want to get down to business. So first thing you want to do is choose the plants you want to grow. Remember how much space they need. You know, take the information from the nursery in terms of what the spacing is. I always think when we plant our garden at the beginning of the year, that it looks so sad and so sparse. And by the end, I'm building eight-foot-tall trellises to hold up the tomato plants from falling over on the cucumbers or something like that. So uh, they do grow. Just remember that. And following the space advice is really, really important. But you know what? Get get a start now, and you'll be good to go. And I don't know where you live in the country, but in our part of the the world, you know, we have uh, veggies really through, well, definitely through the end of September and sometimes into October, depending on how warm the fall season is. (laughs) So you have to deliver, Tom. My neighbors have come to expect on a healthy supply of tomatoes. I'll just say that. Speaking of delivery, do you deliver to Long Island? Because I might be expecting some as well. Absolutely. If I order it by noon, though, will it arrive the same day? Because um... you have Prime, right? You have Money Pit Prime. <laughs> Courtney in Rhode Island's looking for some gardening tips. What can we do for you? I'm trying to find a spot for my raised garden bed. Um, I'd like to put it behind the house, which is the north side. Um, and I remember last year the spot being full sun, but last week I noticed it was completely shaded. 
how can I tell where it was gonna where a good spot will be? You know, when it comes time to plant. Yeah, I think you've just you've just told yourself. <laughs> yeah, it depends on how high the sun is in the sky, and right now right, it's really spring. It's a seasonal thing. Yeah, and it's a seasonal thing. So, um, it in order for you to get full sun for the longest period of time, it has to be in a more wide open space with no obstructions. And the north side of the house is generally not the best place to put a garden because it typically is the cooler side of the house. And, and you know, I had a situation when I first moved to my home that was like that, where we had a, a spot that always been used in the garden. And, you know, because we lived there, my family lived there before that, I kind of didn't notice how big the trees had gotten. But I did notice that my garden was getting smaller every year until I was like, duh, I got to move the garden. And once we moved it to a full sun southern spot, the garden production pretty much doubled and then tripled. So... I think uh, that you basically have to get it somewhere else other than the north if you really want to have a long season here. Gotcha. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, hardwood floors, they add beauty, durability, and value to a home, but they do need to be refinished from time to time. And here's how to best get that project done. First of all, how do you know if your floors really need to be refinished? Well, there's a simple test, actually, that can give you some indication of how badly they're worn. First of all, you want to go to a high-traffic area where the finish takes the most abuse and then pour a tablespoon of water onto the floor. If that water forms beads, then the floor is still properly sealed. If that water takes a few minutes to seep in and then only darkens the floor slightly, the finish is only partly worn and should be refinished soon. But if that water soaks right in and leaves a dark spot, it is definitely time to do that project. Now, that is a big project to do, by the way, refinishing a floor. It's a job... That takes uh, you know a lot of effort, and while you might be able to do it yourself, it's probably not one that you may want to do yourself because it starts with removing all of the furniture in the room, of course, cleaning the floor, and then removing the old finish. And removing the finish is an area where we constantly see well-meaning DIYers get themselves in a jam. Now, pros are going to use floor sanders for that part of the project. Even if you were to rent one, it takes a lot of practice to get the skills to use it. And one slip-up means you'll be staring at deep, ugly gouges for all the days you have left in your home. Now, if the floor finish is only slightly worn, it doesn't have any big dings or dents or scratches or cracks, you could simply buff the floor with a sanding screen. You'd use like a floor buffer, which you'd also have to rent, but instead of the buffer, you would use a screen underneath that. And what that does is just sands off the upper surface of the finish and gets it ready for the next coats, which is a much easier and far less potentially destructive way to prep your floor for the finishing to follow. Yeah, now next comes the refinishing part. After it's sanded, now this really is a big job and you got to do it right. If you're restaining the floor, the color you see in the store is rarely the color you're going to see when you apply it to your floor. Now, the age of the floor combined with the old finish means absorption rates are going to vary, and a pro will know how to apply the stain to keep everything looking nice and, more importantly, looking even. Plus, the finishes that pros apply are often much tougher than what you might find in a home center or even the paint store. They're going to dry quickly and get you back into your newly refinished rooms as quickly as possible, which, trust me, you're going to want because this is a big, long process. It really is. Now, in terms of applying the finish, the way that's usually done is with a lamb's wool mop. Now, lamb's wool is a piece of material that has an absorbent side on one side, a smooth side on the back. 
it basically gets wrapped around a wood applicator, which kind of looks like a, a wet mop that you might, a sponge mop that you might buy to do your kitchen or bath floors, that sort of thing. But this is designed specifically to hold that lamb's wool, and you dip it into a paint tray, then it'll be full with the urethane, and you start mopping it on and working your way out. You cut in the outside edges like normal, and you work your way to the door, close the door behind you, and then don't go back into that space for at least a day, if not longer, because it always takes longer to dry than what it says on the can. You're going to have to do a couple of coats, but when you're done, you can have a floor that's going to last you, you know, several more years. Now, I did this, Leslie, to the house that we bought Last year, and we had 1906 floors that were fur floors, not oak, but fur, but they were attractive, except they were really, really worn. And I did hire a pro to do the work, even though I could have done it myself, because listen, it was an awful lot of work to be done. I wanted it done quickly. Plus, these guys had all the tools. They even had a specialized sander that was designed to go underneath the radiators, so you didn't have to do that part by hand. And they really did an amazing job. The before and afters were just stunning. And so I'm a firm believer in uh, not always doing it yourself if there's good reasons to hire a pro. In this case, that's exactly what I did, even though I could have tackled the job by myself. Yeah, sometimes it's better to let somebody else do it, Tom. That's That's a big, messy project. Yeah. Richard wrote in saying, I had a leak in a second floor bath that got the ceiling very wet in the room below. I'm getting conflicting opinions whether I need to replace the ceiling where it leaked, the stain dried out, and the drywall doesn't look damaged. Yep, that's a good question. Now, just to clarify the situation, you don't have to replace the drywall if it's not become damaged itself. And really, any surface that gets wet, people worry about mold, Leslie, a lot. But unless it stays wet, then you don't have any issue with mold. Because once that water dries out, there's nothing really to feed it. It needs that water to, to kind of survive. So in your case, Rich, what I would do is I would prime that ceiling with a good coat of primer, and then I would paint it. Because if you don't put primer on, the stain will come through. But if that water had sat behind that ceiling for a long period of time, and the ceiling had become swollen or deformed, that's the reason that you replace the ceiling. It's not anything to do with mold. It's really just that it doesn't look right. So in this case, it sounds like you got the problem fixed pretty quickly because it didn't cause that kind of long-term damage to the surface. It's just a stain. So prime it, paint it, and move on. Now, Charlotte wrote in saying, I'm thinking about adding a heat pump to a house that I'm in the process of buying in western Pennsylvania. Right now, the home has a gas furnace, but no central AC. I like the idea of having one system that does both, but I appreciate your opinion. Well, first of all, an electric heat pump is still going to be far more expensive to run than a gas furnace. And to add air conditioning, even with a heat pump, you're going to have to redo your ducts. So I think you're much better off if you're ready to replace the existing furnace is to go ahead and make that replacement and then modify the ducts to support a central air conditioning system. Today, you can do this with very efficient air conditioning systems and very efficient uh, heating systems, you know, your furnaces today, can the efficiencies can be in the 90s and, frankly, as close to 100 as they get. I mean, I've got a system that is probably 95% efficient, and it's just awesome. My heating bills have gone way down since I made that upgrade, but I would not give up gas heat to go to a heat pump. You can get efficient heat pumps. They're still not going to compete, and they're pretty expensive to run. So, Tom, at this point, if Charlotte is at the stage of considering really upgrading the entire HVAC system in the home, do you start thinking of the extra bells and whistles like whole home humidifiers, you know, anything like that? Is this the time to kind of consider that? Well, yeah, because installing that sort of thing after the fact requires modifying the ducts. I'd rather see you plan that in 
now, even if maybe you don't have the budget for it, you could configure the ducts that those systems could fit in. But I would consider definitely a humidifier. And if you're going to do that, you also should consider a whole house air filtration system, or I should say maybe a more efficient air filtration system than just the standard fiberglass filters that come in. Electronic air cleaner, for example, would be optimum. That can take out not only dust, but even virus-sized particles from the air. So while you're at it, and I always say those are the four most expensive words in home improvement, in this case, you'll spend more if you do that part of the project later. So do it all at once. All right, Charlotte, I hope that helps you out while you're at it. This is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. Hey, guys, thank you so much for spending a bit of your day with us. We hope that we've given you some great ideas, maybe some inspiration to avoid the perspiration when it comes to planning and tackling your home projects, especially your spring home projects. This is just such an energetic time of the year to get outside, to do projects outside, to do projects inside, whether it's a deck, a patio, simply a painting project, whether it involves driving nails or picking up a paintbrush. Now's the time to get it done. We will be here for you, as always, to help you get those projects done when you reach out to us at one Money Pit or post your questions always at moneypit.com slash ask. Until then, I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Remember, you can do it yourself. But you don't have to do it alone. You live in a Money Pit. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money on 